Hello, everyone. Welcome to A Good Night for a Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. My name is Kim, and tonight's story takes place on a dark, isolated island off the coast of New England. This is the story of the Smutty Nose Murders. But first, a Victorian society tip. This episode is being released on November 8th, which means in the U.S. we all just fell back to standard time as opposed to daylight saving time. While this was not particularly a Victorian society problem, its origins are close enough and it is still relevant to us today. So today's tip is to try to help you understand daylight saving time and why we observe it. To be clear, the date this is released will be November 8th, 2023, meaning we are now in standard time in most parts of the U.S. anyway. Arizona and Hawaii do not observe daylight saving time, and in fact, it is not practiced in many parts of the world. Locations nearer to the equator, where the number of daylight hours are mostly consistent year-round, have no need to participate in daylight saving time. Daylight saving time is mostly a European and North American thing, as well as parts of Africa, Asia, South America, and Australia that are situated more solidly within the northern or southern hemispheres. Now, we don't all observe the time change on the same day, but the switch happens usually within about a week of one another. So to recap, we are currently observing standard time. We practice daylight saving time from about mid-March through mid-November. But why? Why do we do this to ourselves? Many credit Benjamin Franklin with first proposing the idea of daylight saving time, but he did not. This misconception stems from not understanding 18th century jokes. While working as an envoy in France from 1776 to 1785, Franklin submitted a satirical piece to the Journal of Paris suggesting that if Parisians could wake up earlier, they'd save considerably on candle wax. He didn't actually propose any clock changing, though. His suggestions included taxing window shutters, rationing candles, and ringing church bells and firing cannons at sunrise to wake up citizens. Most of 18th century Europe, U.S., and anywhere else for that matter, hardly kept to a time clock anyway. That didn't become a thing until rail transport and communication networks started to become widely adopted. Many also think that daylight saving time was implemented to benefit farming practices, but as it would turn out, farmers were one of the groups who were the most opposed to adjusting their practices to a time clock. Their work depends mostly on the solar time of day. For example, there were certain tasks such as tending to crops only after the morning dew had completely evaporated, or when dairy cows would be ready to milk. And these things align with the height of the sun in the sky, not the time we move our clocks to. All over the world, actually, people have been casually adjusting their lives to seasonal changes since ancient times as it worked for them. The Romans kept time with water clocks that held different weights for different times of year. In 1810, the Spanish National Assembly formally moved select meeting times forward by one hour from May to September. This aligned with many private businesses that would open and close later or earlier to align more with daylight hours. But there was still nowhere that implemented these changes by law. The first attempt to do that was by British-born New Zealander entomologist George Hudson. Yes, an entomologist. He liked to study bugs but his full-time job didn't afford him as many daylight hours after work as he would have liked to practice entomology. So, in 1895, he made a presentation to the Wellington Philosophical Society proposing a two-hour daylight saving shift. The idea was well-received, but still not law. Separately, in 1905, William Willett, who was described as a prominent English builder and outdoorsman, was up at dawn for a ride one morning when he noticed how many Londoners were still asleep as the sun was coming up. 
Plus, Willett enjoyed a round of golf and disliked cutting his round short when the sun began to set. So he proposed advancing the clock during the summer months. In 1908, Liberal Party Member of Parliament Robert Pierce took the idea and ran with it, introducing the first daylight saving bill to the British House of Commons in February of 1908. And that's it. That's where daylight saving time started. Some men who wanted more time to practice their hobbies. Had George Hudson studied fireflies, or if either men had been responsible for taking care of pets or children, who are notorious for waking at dawn and no matter what, maybe things would have been different. But no, they wanted more time to collect bugs and golf. Even so, though the proposals were considered, nothing actually panned out so far as widespread adoption. A more practical reason for implementing a daylight saving time routine actually took hold in Port Arthur, Ontario, Canada in 1908 at the city level. This, so far as I can tell, was simply to make more use of daylight hours during the months with shorter days. Orilla, Ontario followed suit, but this was still on a city-by-city level. In 1916, though, during the First World War, the German Empire and Austria-Hungary enacted daylight saving time rules in order to conserve coal and other resources during the war. Britain, most of its allies, and European neutral countries fell in line as well, including the U.S. in 1918. After the war ended, though, many jurisdictions reverted back to standard time year-round with the exceptions of Canada, the United Kingdom, France, Ireland, and the United States. We kept right on flip-flopping between daylight saving and standard time every six months. During World War II, the U.S. stopped falling back to standard time and kept up full daylight saving time hours all year long. This was known as wartime. Two words, not one. And again, had to do with conservation of resources. After the war ended, local jurisdictions were allowed to determine if and when they would observe daylight saving time. But in 1966, the U.S. implemented the Uniform Time Act, which followed the six-months-on-six-months-off daylight saving time schedule. In 1974, the U.S. tried a year of permanent daylight saving time, but found this required too much of the working population and school children to complete their morning routines and commutes in the dark, so it was repealed the following year. The debate isn't over, though, as most Americans will be familiar with the Sunshine Protection Act of March 2022 that intended to make daylight savings time permanent again in spring of 2023. Well, here we are in fall 2023 with no change. Bottom line is most countries have made many adjustments to their time observance practices over the years. Hopefully, that history made you feel a bit more grounded amongst the time switch chaos this week. We have a new Patreon member to welcome this week. Welcome and thank you to newest member Richard. I'm so glad you're here. If you would like to learn more about the Goodnight for a Murder Patreon, you can do so on my website at agoodnightforamurder.com. A Good Night for a Murder is a true crime podcast that does cover stories including death, violence, sexual assault, and other adult themes. Please take care while listening. The Isles of Shoals is a small group of islands about six miles off the coast of Newcastle, New Hampshire, and Kittery, Maine. In fact, the state border runs right between three of the largest islands in the archipelago, Star Island, Appledore Island, and Smutty Nose Island. Smutty Nose Island was named by fishermen who thought the volumes of seaweed that grew at one end of the island made it look like the dirty or smutty nose of some great sea animal. 
The islands are the epitome of New England coast with low brush, sandy ground, and rocky shores, where it was noted by one of the first English explorers to set foot on the island that he could neither see one good timber tree nor so much good ground as to make a garden. The place is found to be a good fishing place for six ships, but more cannot be well there for want of convenient stage room. The largest island, which is Appledore, is only 95 acres in all and only a little over a half mile wide in its longest direction. Star Island is only 46 acres, and Smutty Nose is even smaller still at only 25 acres. However, I would argue that out of all the Isles of Shoals, it's Smutty Nose Island that has the most colorful past. In 1720, it's said that Blackbeard the pirate fled the island after spotting English warships, leaving his treasure and new wife behind. The young bride, rumored to be his 15th, of course haunts the island to this day. In January of 1813, the Spanish ship Sengunto wrecked on the rocky shores of the island in a blinding snowstorm. The crew of 14 sailors were tossed out into the sea, and those who managed to make their way to shore attempted to crawl and stumble their way in the freezing cold towards a cabin with a single candle glowing in the window. Many collapsed along the beach, but few managed to make it to the stone wall surrounding the cabin. Their calls for help, though, were no match for the storm, and in the end, they sadly all froze to death and were buried right there on the beach. It's said that the ghostly image of a ship can still be seen reliving its last tragic moments on snowy nights. Then, of course, in 1873, there was a shocking double homicide that no one could have foreseen. John Hauntvent immigrated to the U.S. from Norway in about 1863. It took him about seven years to establish himself in the Boston, Massachusetts area as a successful trawl fisherman, after which he was able to bring over a young bride from Norway, Marin Christensen. The marriage was likely arranged, but a good match nonetheless, and shortly after Marin joined John in America, the couple moved to Smutty Nose Island in the Isles of Shoals off the coast of New Hampshire and Maine. They sailed on John's fishing schooner, the Clarabella, and rented a two-story duplex on the island known locally as the Red House for its bright red exterior that stood out amongst the rugged landscape. A hotel called the Mid-Ocean House hosted tourists and guests from the mainland on the island during the summer months, but in the off-season, the only residents of the island were Marin and John Hauntvent. Every day, John would sail to his fishing grounds, draw his trawl lines, and deliver his catch to a market in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where he would buy bait then sail back home to Smutty Nose Island. Everyone thought highly of the young, industrious couple. Also living in the area at that time was a young Prussian man of about 28 named Louis Wagner, who unfortunately had not enjoyed the same success John Hanfin had. Wagner was a dory fisherman, a dory being essentially a small rowboat, and it seemed he was always in the position of barely being able to make ends meet. A lot of people found Wagner sort of shifty and gruff, but the Hanfins took Wagner under the wing, so to speak. John hired Wagner to work with him and even offered him a room in their home. And for two years, the trio seemed quite content in their circumstances. In 1871, Marin's sister Karen immigrated to America and came to stay with her sister and brother-in-law until she could get on her feet. Shortly after her arrival, Karen found a job as a live-in maid for a family living on the neighboring Appledore Island. In October of 1872, the Hauntvents found themselves with more family coming to stay with them. This time, it was John's brother Matthew and Marin's brother Ivan, plus Ivan's new wife, Annette. Suddenly, the Hauntvents found their house very full, and John found himself with more help than he needed for his fishing business. None of the sources I have say exactly what the nature of this was, but ultimately, Louis Wagner left the Hauntvent home and went back to work for himself. Could have been John had to dismiss him, or it could have been Wagner just excuse himself. Either way, Wagner vacates his room in the Hauntvent house and found work again on a fishing schooner called the Addison Gilbert that November. 
In a stroke of bad luck, though, the Addison Gilbert wrecked and Wagner again found himself out of the job. He returned to Portsmouth, where he scraped by doing odd jobs along the wharves. The work didn't pay much, though, and by March of next year, Wagner found himself in a bad way again, barely able to make rent. On March 5, 1873, John, his brother Matthew, and brother-in-law Ivan set sail as usual to draw their trawl lines. Now that there was three of them, they had taken to stopping back on Smutty Nose and leaving one of the men on the island while the other two headed to the mainland to sell their catch and purchase bait. But this day, the wind had changed to make it more favorable for them to sail directly for the mainland, so instead of stopping back home first, all three of them continued directly to Portsmouth. They met a neighbor at sea and asked them to deliver a message to the women back on Smutty Nose to let them know, which the neighbor did. The three arrived in Portsmouth, where Wagner was working on the docks and helped tie up the ship when it arrived. Wagner greeted his old boss and asked if he thought they'd be returning to the island that night. John responded they did plan on returning, unless the train carrying the bait was late, in which case they'd bait their lines that night and then spend the night in port. John offered to hire Wagner for the evening to help bait the lines, and Wagner agreed. The shipment of bait was running late, though, as it sometimes did, and the men prepared to spend the night baiting lines. However, Wagner proved to be a no-show that evening. Because, despite all the favors and goodwill the Hauntfence had afforded Wagner— he unfortunately saw their absence from the island that night as an opportunity to take advantage of them. Wagner knows how profitable John's fishing business is, and knows, or at least he assumes, that he has a good bit of cash stored on the island. He also knows that all three men who might get in his way of taking said cash will not be on the island that night. Wagner decides he is going to row out to Smutty Nose Island and take that money. Meanwhile, back on the island, Marin, Annette, and Marin's sister Karen were all going about business as usual. Karen had recently left her maid job and was staying on with her sister again for a short while before starting a new seamstress job in Boston. The women waited up until about 10 p.m. and went to bed. They had no way of knowing that Louis Wagner was pulling up on their shores in a stolen rowboat about the same time. Wagner waited in the cold for about three hours after watching the lights in the house's main room and bedroom go out. At about 1 a.m., he crept towards the house and found the front door unbolted. As quietly as he could, he jammed a piece of wood into the bolt for the bedroom door, effectively locking the two sleeping women in the bedroom. What he did not count on, however, was Karen sleeping near the stove in the kitchen. Karen, believing the men had come home, called out, John, is that you? Her voice woke up Marin and Annette in the next room, who called back to her to see if she was all right, and realizing his plan had been ruined, Wagner grabbed a kitchen chair and struck Karen with it. Karen screamed and tried to escape, but Wagner kept up his assault all the way to the door of the bedroom that Marin and Annette were trying frantically to open. Karen fell against the door, unjamming it, all the while Wagner raining blows upon her. Marin dragged her sister into the room with them and tried her best to barricade the door. She turned to Annette, who was standing petrified in the corner while Wagner beats upon the door from the other side and screams at her sister-in-law to run. Annette climbs out of the window into the snow, but in her panic, she doesn't know which way to run. Her hesitation would prove to be fatal, as Wagner had given up on the door and had now exited the house to find Annette standing outside. Marin hears Annette scream his name, Louis, Louis, before seeing Wagner pull an axe from their woodpile, with which Wagner struck Annette over and over and over again. Marin rushes to Karen, who is limp and bleeding but still conscious, and tries to rouse her, but all her sister can say weakly is, no, too tired. 
She hears Wagner re-entering the house and she is forced to make the horrible decision between staying there with her dying sister or trying to save herself. In a split-second decision, Marin realizes if she stays, they're likely both doomed and she too slips out the window into the bitter cold night and she runs. She heads for the cove intending to escape in whatever craft Wagner arrived in, but Wagner had chosen to dock on the other side of the island in hopes of being undetected. She next thinks she'll hide in the cellar of one of the nearer outbuildings, but quickly rules it out as too likely of a hiding place. So instead, she runs along the shore back past the cabin, where she can still hear her sister moaning inside, and makes for the rocky shoreline where she tucks herself in low amongst the rocks, where the noise of the surf would allow her to go undetected. And she waits. Back in the cabin, Karen had tried in vain to make her way to the window to escape, but she was just too weak. Wagner did break into the room and again used the axe to attack Karen, breaking the handle in the process. Then, using a handkerchief, he strangled her to death. Then, he left the cabin to search for Marin. He searched and he searched, but he couldn't find her anywhere, so he returned to the cabin and brewed a pot of tea. He ate some food he had brought with him using a plate and utensils from the haunt fence kitchen, leaving bloody smears all over everything he touched. Then he dragged Nette back into the house and ransacked it looking for the $500 he was certain John had stashed away in the cabin. He never found it though, all he found was $15. In fact, the most money John had in the cabin at all was just $135. Meanwhile, Marin waited until first light, then she waited even longer. At about 8am, she staggered across a breakwater connecting Smutty Nose to an even smaller island, Malaga, and desperately waved her arms to gain the attention of some children playing on the shores of Appledore. The children belonged to George Ingerbridson, who ran and alerted their father, who immediately rode out to rescue Marin. He rushed Marin up to his house and left her in the care of his wife before gathering a group of men to set out with guns to search Smutty Nose Island. There, they found the dreadful scene as Marin had described it including a trail of bloody footprints circling every single building on the island left by Wagner as he desperately searched for Marin the night before. The men searched the entire island and found nothing. They returned to Appledore and continued searching when a few hours later the Clarabella is spotted returning from Portsmouth. They signaled the Clarabella from the shore of Appledore and Matthew and Ivan row a tender boat from the ship to Appledore and John continued on to dock the Clarabella on Smutty Nose. When Matthew and Ivan land on Appledora, the others alert them of, quote, some trouble on Smutty Nose, but note that Marin is safe. Matthew and Ivan rush to the Ingerbretson house where Marin is being cared for, where they're horrified to find Marin terribly injured and grief-stricken. Marin cannot bring herself to tell Ivan what actually happened to his young wife. All she can manage to share with him is that Annette is still at home. Matthew and Ivan race to their tender and row furiously to Smutty Nose, where they land about the same time as John on the Clarabella. All three rush to the cabin, where they find both Annette and Karen dead and cold laying on the floor. Authorities are alerted, and by that evening, a description of Wagner and details of the event are all over the evening news. The last anyone reported seeing Wagner the night before was about 7.30pm, shortly after he'd spoken with John about him likely not returning to the island that evening. He had then been seen rowing a dory at about 6 a.m. that morning. The dory was located and reported to be stolen. The owner of the dory noted that they had just replaced the thole pins on the dory, which as far as I can tell are the holes the oars rest in, and now they seem to be worn down nearly a quarter of an inch. This aligns with the nearly six hours of round-trip rowing required to make it to Smutty Nose and back. Wagner's landlord reported she saw him return about 7 a.m. and described his appearance as wet and disheveled. 
They reported he'd arrived, changed clothes, and visited the outhouse carrying a bundle of clothes. When the outhouse was searched, they found a bloody shirt that the landlord positively identified as belonging to Wagner, as she had laundered it for him many times before. Then, he apparently caught the 9 a.m. train to Boston. In Boston, he purchased new boots and clothes. This, plus the train ticket, added up to nearly exactly the $15 that had been stolen from the Hotfence house. He was picked up by Boston police later that night, hanging around a boarding house that he could not afford to sleep in, and he did not resist arrest. News of his capture spread quickly, and the next day, as he was marched to the train station to be returned to Portsmouth, a crowd of nearly 500 followed him through the streets. At every train stop along the way, more and more citizens crowded the platforms, calling for his demise. By the time the train reached Portsmouth, it's reported that a mob of nearly 10,000 outraged citizens had gathered seeking immediate justice on behalf of the haunt fence and their family. Wagner had to be transferred again to Maine for his arraignment, which required another police escort, plus reinforcements from the Marines armed with bayonets to keep a crowd of nearly 200 local fishermen from apprehending and tearing apart Wagner themselves. The mob reportedly attacked the escort with stones and bricks, but they managed to transfer Wagner safely. The trial commenced on June 9, 1873. Wagner denied everything, saying he would never even dream of harming who he called his best friends. Unfortunately, Marin's positive identification, plus the circumstantial evidence of the sightings in Portsmouth, bloody clothes identified by the landlady, effort to replace his clothes, and inability to provide an alibi, did him in. After nine days of trial and 55 minutes of deliberation, he was convicted and sentenced to hang. That night, Wagner escaped from jail and was on the loose for three whole days before being recaptured and transferred to the state prison in Thompson, Maine, where he was hanged on June 25, 1875. On that day, the state of Maine actually saw a double execution where the other prisoner had also been found guilty of an axe murder. That story is the topic of the bonus content for this episode, but let's wrap up our story here first. Louis Wagner never confessed. John and Marin Honfent never returned to Smutty Nose Island. They moved into Portsmouth, where John continued to work as a fisherman. They had one child, Clara, in 1877. It seems sometime between then and 1888, Marin had died, as it looks like John was married again in 1888, this time to a woman named Annie, who he went on to have a son with in 1891. He died in 1904 at the age of 62 and is buried in Newington Cemetery in Newington, New Hampshire. Ivan, who had been married to Annette, worked the rest of the next summer on Appledore as a carpenter, but by all accounts, he became a broken man after losing his young bride. At some point, he left the Isles of Shoals, and it looks like he was married again in 1880. He would go on to have five children, Anna, Bernard, Bertha, Calvin, and Clara, and died in Massachusetts at the age of 76. The fact that Louis Wagner never confessed has spawned several of what most agree are certifiably absurd conspiracy theories. The first is that Marin Hontvent lost her mind and axed her sister and sister-in-law to death while the men were away. I agree with the experts here that this is, quite frankly, bullshit. Wagner did indeed try to desperately pin the crime on Marin at one point, which was reported in the newspaper at the time. This inspired a 1997 novel titled The Weight of Water by Anita Shreve that is a fictionalized version of the events. The book was later made into a film in the year 2000 starring Sean Penn and Elizabeth Hurley. Another theory is that an intellectually disabled young man on Appledore Island had committed the murder, but there is zero evidence to back this up. The theory that it could not have been Wagner is sometimes bolstered by the argument that it was nearly impossible to row the 10 miles to and from Smutty Nose Island in one evening, as Wagner is said to have done. But that's just not true. 
The trip is very doable. In fact, John Honfen would make the trip in a rowboat by himself all the time. Plus, kayakers commonly make the same trip as well. All the same, I have linked to Anita Shrew's book in the blog post for this episode, as well as a historical account, Mystery on the Isles of Shoals, Closing the Case on the Smutty Nose Axe Murders of 1873 by J. Dennis Robinson, written in 2019. There is also a song written about the case, The Ballad of Louis Wagner, written and performed by John Perrault in 1981. You'll also find the link to that in the episode blog on my website, in addition to some photos of the main players in tonight's story, as well as some photos of the Isles of Shoals then and now. You can also see the photos on Instagram where you can let me know your thoughts on this case, as well as on YouTube at A Good Night for a Murder. As usual, the photos and source links can be found in the episode blog on my website at agoodnightforamurder.com. While you're on the website, you can sign up for the Goodnight for a Murder newsletter. Each month, I send out an episode roundup, reveal of next month's episodes, and other goodies like extra Victorian society tips, book recommendations, and more. The bonus content for Housekeeper and Butler tier Patreons for this episode, as I mentioned earlier, is the story of another axe murder that played out concurrent to the Smutty Nose Island case where both convicted were executed in a double hanging that day in June 1875. Listen through the outro music to hear a short preview of this Patreon bonus content. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more about the podcast, you can visit a goodnightforamurder.com. Also follow me on Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube at a goodnightforamurder. Please rate and review and share with friends. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. And to accompany episode 32 about the Smutty Nose murders, we are going to talk about another axe murder in the state of Maine that occurred at the same time as the Smutty Nose murders, where both the convicted prisoners were executed in a double hanging. In June of 1873, John True Gordon, aged 29, was living in Thorndike, Maine on his family farm along with his elderly parents, his younger brother Alman, Alman's wife Emma, and their two children, five-year-old Ira and 17-month-old daughter Millie. The family also employed at least one full-time farmhand, Eldon Ward, who slept on the third floor of the farmhouse. John had been having kind of a tough time lately. First, he was still living at home with his parents, though this was under the assumption that when his parents passed on, he, as the eldest son, would inherit the estate. However, his brother Alman, who was four years younger than him, had gotten married first and moved his young wife into the family farmhouse. Five years ago, they'd welcomed a son, and a little over a year ago, they had a baby girl. They'd also become an integral part of the upkeep and care of the farm, as well as caring for John and Alman's aging parents. Their parents, John Sr. and Drusilla, foresaw that Alman and his wife Emma would continue down this path, and as such, they had willed the farm to Alman. And this really ground John Jr.'s gears. As the eldest son, he felt strongly that he should reap the benefits of inheriting the farm when the time came. What's more, John's fiancée, Julia, had recently gotten cold feet after receiving several anonymous letters painting a less-than-stellar picture of John and his character.